wilderness medicine or austere medicine or wilder national medicine. Which we've trained 18,000 people here in Mexico, which is phenomenal. Welcome to Wilderness and Environmental Medicine Live Podcast. Welcome to Wilderness and Environmental Medicine Live Podcast. This is the September 2019 edition, and we have lined up for you some really interesting stuff. First, we will talk about a journal article on whitewater sports, cold, and deaths, which will be our CME article in the journal. Then we're going to go on to an article on cold acclimation. Is this really possible? We'll then discuss a spectacular case report of a drone rescue in the Karakoram Himalayas. And then we'll end it off with an interesting interview I had while teaching improvised medicine in Mexico. With the question being, what exactly is wilder national medicine? Que onda? This literally means what a wave. It also means what's happening. And it was great to meet many of you at the WMS Summer Conference in Crested Butte. And guess what? We have some exciting things coming up from that meeting with our podcast. First of all, we're entertaining putting on some videos, procedural videos, very small, short videos. So stay tuned to the website as we make announcements about this. Secondly, the journal has been doing some really amazing stuff. And here's an extra shout out to Dr. Neil Pollock, who's really taken the journal to a new high. So this is a review that I discussed with Dr. David Farstad over the phone, over an iPhone that is, but here we go. Let's listen in to this review article. Good morning, I have Dr. David Farstad with me to discuss cold water immersion syndrome and whitewater recreation fatality, which is a review in the journal. Welcome, David. Please tell us briefly about yourself. Thanks for inviting me. My first job out of high school was as a whitewater guide, which was roughly 40 years ago. I've kayaked and rafted extensively since that time. My professional career includes about 10 years as a paramedic firefighter and then as an emergency physician, which I continue currently in the front range of Colorado. This paper comes both from my whitewater experiences as well as an interest in the physiology of cold water immersion syndrome. The group of whitewater deaths drawing most of my academic interests are those which seem to have an immersion rather than submersion mechanism. These deaths would often fall into a larger group referred to as flush drownings by boaters. Cold water immersion syndrome is essentially the physiologic response occurring after sudden immersion in cold water. It begins almost immediately with what's referred to as a cold shock response. This includes an inhalational gas, followed by tachypnea, tachycardia, and hypertension. This is followed by a second phase termed swim failure, which relates to weakness and loss of coordination, mostly from local skin cooling. The third and fourth phases are hypothermia and post-rescue collapse. The paper also touches on the impact of the diving reflex and closely related concept of autonomic conflict in cold water emerging physiology. Although fundamentally a review rather than a study, this paper does suggest that the cold shock and swim failure phases of cold water immersion syndrome and possibly the contribution of autonomic conflict are compelling candidates in the mechanism of death in immersion 
subset of flush drownings. So there's flush drowning, and it sounds like it may be some kind of cause which cannot be attributed to any obvious pathology. And we were wondering what is flush drowning and what is the difference between this and cold water immersion? Um, flush drowning and cold water immersion very different. Cold water immersion syndrome is essentially the physiological response to immersion in cold water, whereas flush drowning is a very subjective classification of whitewater fatalities. And it's a term which is essentially only used by boaters. And we don't know how many of this group are related to cold water immersion syndrome, but that's essentially the paper is asking that question as much as defining cold water immersion syndrome. So it sounds like the cold water immersion syndrome then is, it's a response. You go into cold water and the flush drowning is basically going to be the consequence. And what was interesting is that there was a older study, I think it was in the 1980s, that was cited that you had cold water immersion syndrome occurring in water temperatures of 10 degrees centigrade or less. But it sounds like it could be 20 centigrade or you know something like that because 10 degrees centigrade, I should say, is pretty cold. So could you actually have a cold water immersion syndrome happening with what we would maybe call a little warmer water, which isn't that warm? For instance, a Grand Canyon and whatnot. The, the reference... I think the 10 degrees was more or less seemed to be pulled out of the air rather than based on any previous data. If you look at the research out of the United Kingdom, University of Portsmouth, they pretty clearly defined 20 to 25 degrees as the threshold for cold water immersion syndrome, which interestingly is also about where the diving reflex occurs. So there's this term called cold water immersion syndrome. It's simply a physiological response to you, what happens to you after you are immersed in cold water, simple. And it occurs pretty much immediately after you're dunked in cold water, starting with this inhalational gasp, and then hyperventilation, tachycardia, and probably panic. And cold water immersion syndrome can occur in water that's 25 degrees centigrade or less, which is the temperature of the induction of the cold diving reflex. Then cold water immersion syndrome could likely occur at a higher temperature. And it's interesting because in the article you mentioned that in uh, water versus air, you're going to cool off 25 times faster. So it sounds like that would contribute possibly to Cold water immersion, however, would the same drastic physiological changes occur. For instance, the initial gasp and then the uh, hyperpnea or the hyperventilation and some of the mammalian diving reflexes happening afterwards. Yeah, there's clearly an increased intensity of cold water immersion with decreasing temperature, and it seems to peak out around 10 to 15 degrees Celsius. And there's a much stronger response in a unstaged immersion, such as falling out of a raft, rather than slowly um, immersing yourself in cold water, you see two to three times the 
increase in the um, intensity of the reaction. It seems like cold water immersion is not simply a catecholamine surge response. In that article, you mentioned some pretty interesting physiologic consequences. Initially, there's this gasp, like we just alluded to. Then there's a hyperventilation. Is that coming from the brainstem reflex? Is it cam coming from a catecholamine surge? How do we know it's from the brainstem? The subcortical midbrain medullary pontine pathways underlying both the ventilatory and cardiovascular responses in cold water immersion syndrome are largely uncharacterized, but are accepted almost universally based on the immediate nature of the responses, as well as a number of animal studies where they would ablate certain pathways. Th these responses are not seen in warm water, suggesting they are initiated by cutaneous cold receptors. And even with this said, it is recognized that cortically generated responses from anxiety and sympathetic drive drivers are also involved, but if they overlap the cold shock reflex rather than cause it. Would any of the consequences, such as driving down the arterial carbon dioxide from hyperventilation, possibly contribute to death, not so much from cold water immersion syndrome or hypothermia, but shallow water blackout and drowning? And I'm not sure how this could actually be studied. A shallow water blackout, which from my understanding is a secondary hypoxia after hypocarbia would be unlikely during the cold shock phase of cold water immersion syndrome, which is that first phase, just because the tachypnea that's associated with it. Although later phases, you could there could be multiple mechanisms for syncope, including cerebral vasoconstriction from hypocapnia itself. And you know, there's a feeling that this initial gasp that occurs in the uncontrolled tachypnea in that first phase could subject a person to aspiration. You know, if you aspirated enough fluid, that could result in a hypoxic syncope event. There is an increased intensity of cold water immersion syndrome with decreasing temperatures. And this tends to peak out at about 10 to 15 degrees Celsius, according to the author. The cold stress response is about three times worse during sudden immersion, such as an accidental spill off the boat, versus a slower, more controlled immersion in cold water. We discussed the role of shallow water blackout when you drive down your partial pressure of carbon dioxide to the extent that your peripheral chemoreceptors are basically telling you you don't need to breathe. However, you pass a critical point where the partial pressure of arterial oxygen goes down to a significant extent to cause one to become unconscious and then drowning would occur. Well, this doesn't tend to occur in the initial stages of this physiologic response, but it could occur at a later time period. However, the hyperventilation, the tachypnea could result in a greater risk of aspiration of water. The term expiratory apnea, what is that exactly? That's probably a little confusing in the way it was presented. Expiratory apnea has to do more with the diving reflex. And the initial herring brewer inspiration reflex actually results in tachycardia or 
in tachycardia rather than bradycardia. But as you pass through the uh, initial inspiration, you expire and you are apneic because of obstruction, so you're underwater, you start to get the parasympathetic reflexes overtaking with bradycardia. So that would be, like I said, more of a issue with entrapment, submersion drownings rather than uh, flush drowning. Do you know of any literature that gives any indication as to whether somebody with a previous psychological profile, such as being angry, having an increased catecholamine surge, for instance, would have less of a survivability probability after cold water immersion syndrome? Because you did mention a very interesting thing that people who are angry or whatnot can actually have ventricular dysrhythmias versus others who might end up having what I would see as asystole. Yeah, I know. I don't know of any specific studies that address the psychological profiles, but there there is cardiology literature out there that uh, links ventricular arrhythmias to extreme emotional states and startle reactions, and it's felt that these may be forms of autonomic imbalance, which would subject you to certain arrhythmias. This said, I in in my practice career, I have seen patients with normal coronary arteries arrest during episodes of both extreme emotional upset or pain. And it seems like it would be a very interesting area of research. For now, we could deduce that if you're doing a sport like whitewater rafting or if you get dumped into the water, don't panic because it could kill you. Yes. You know, the emotional and uh, psychological events that kind of precede the immersion have to have some degree of importance. And the reason I say that is, you know, most of the studies that have been done, and granted they're mostly done on young, healthy people, where they immerse them in very cold water, they do frequently cause arrhythmias, but rarely death. So there must be other factors involved. The role of catecholamines and the psychological profile of an individual can possibly determine outcome during one of these events. And Dr. Farstad alluded to the to cases that he's seen where a person with normal coronary arteries would still go on to have a cardiac arrest. So yes, coronary artery disease could make you more susceptible to some of these events if your catecholamines are high. But even if you have normal coronary arteries, if your catecholamine levels are super high, you still are in danger of a cardiac arrest after a sudden immersion episode. And young subjects have had arrhythmias detected, although these subjects didn't die in a controlled environment. However, there are probably some additional factors that would cause fatal arrhythmias in those who end up drowning and dying. So I want to go out to Alaska and go kayaking on a sound. And for myself or any listeners out there, at risk for cold water immersion syndrome. Do you have any preventative strategies? And I know that was outlined in the article, but if you would please summarize those, that'd be great. Yeah, for my money, I think the best preventative strategy against cold water immersion syndrome is good thermal protection, which at its extreme would be a dry suit with adequate layering. A wetsuit probably is reasonable. And this is based on the fact that you know, the cold water immersion syndrome is believed to be triggered by 
thermal receptors on the skin. There's also evidence that you can acclimate yourself to cold water. For instance, the cold shock ventilatory response decreases up to 30% after repeated cold water immersion. And those changes can last several weeks after the adaptive behavior. There's also probably a cortical phenomena accounting for reduced anxiety if you go into cold water, if you pre-expose yourself. I think it's probably also important to acknowledge that you know, certain physiologic risk factors for a poor outcome need to be considered. Among these, uh, channelopathies, cardiomyopathy, and although not really presented in this paper, advanced age itself seems to be an important risk factor. Do you believe that at this point, because there's renewed debate, and you may not have the answer for this, but there seems to be renewed debate that there is actually a protein-induced cold acclimation, much like heat acclimation or altitude acclimatization. Do you believe that that could play a role, or is it more of a simply maybe a behavioral modification in that you're used to the cold, you tend not to gasp as much, and you have this reserve, I could say, for a few weeks that enables you to not initiate some of the physiological responses associated with this cold water immersion syndrome. I don't know if that came out right, that question, but. I understand it. Um, from my recollection, Tipton and colleagues in the UK who've done almost all of the research in this area have done certain experiments to separate the cortical versus subcortical aspects of uh, acclimatization. And there does seem to be either a protein, you know, transcription response or, you know, non-cortical behavioral changes, although the latter obviously is, is part of it. Um, one of his studies actually did uh, note some gene upregulation in, in neurons with uh, repeated cold immersion. I'm not sure whether he published that or not. Well, that's fascinating and That'll be the future to determine if that really does exist. So it's a very interesting discussion with Dr. Farstad, and we go on to add just a few additional points. So initially, if you're going into cold water and maybe you didn't have time to undergo some sort of a cold acclimation strategy, protect the skin. Protect the skin with a dry suit or even a wetsuit, but a dry suit because the response initially for some of this deadly syndrome is based on the exposure of skin receptors to the cold environment. So protect those skin receptors. And then if you have time, avail yourself to some sort of a cold acclimation strategy. Some risk factors to take care of might be some channelopathy or predisposition to arrhythmia, coronary artery disease, and of course, advanced age. So there's an interesting study from Lithuania that discusses a time course of physiological and psychological responses in humans during a 20-day severe cold acclimation program. That's actually the title of the study. And what the investigators did is they wanted to determine whether 17 head-out acute cold water immersions over a period of 20 days was sufficient to develop cold acclimation. And they were looking at the development of metabolic or hypothermic versus insulative 
patterns of physiological response. Evidently, there is some brown fat activity in individuals, and brown fat activity can actually be increased to a certain extent in individuals who undergo cold acclimation. And what was interesting is that the investigators posit that those who are more obese indicated by white adipose tissue, not brown adipose tissue, but white adipose tissue indicated by an increased BMI, the body mass index, and subcutaneous fat thickness in subjects would imply maybe an increase in non-shivering thermogenesis. Those who are thinner will shiver. That's shivering thermogenesis to keep body temperature maintained. But those who are larger may not shiver as readily. And so the investigators wanted to find out if this was true or not. So they took these subjects who are pretty healthy, about 21, 22 years old, who had about 19% body fat and a BMI of about 21%. And these individuals had not had any type of cold acclimation training over the past year. And what the investigators did is they developed this protocol that was comprised of 17 sessions of cooling in a tub of water with that person's head out over a period of 20 days. And one day of rest was applied between the first day of the session and the second day of the session, the 15th and the 16th day, and the 16th and the 17th day. So that's why it took 20 days. And the investigators did some serum tests. They checked pulmonary gas exchange. It was a very interesting study. And what happened was during this cooling phase, subjects were asked every 20 minutes to step out of this bath. And the bath was about 14 degrees centigrade. And then they would rest for 10 minutes in a room environment, which was about 22 degrees centigrade. And then they would go back into the water bath for another 20 minutes of immersion. For the first 16 sessions, the head-out water immersion procedure continued until the rectal temperature, yes, the rectal temperature, had decreased to 35.5 degrees centigrade or until 170 total minutes of time had elapsed, or I should correct, or 120 minutes maximum of total immersion time. So that's a correction, woo, correction, at which time the immersion ended. And there are some interesting results. The head-out cooling protocol reduced the rectal temperature as well as the skin temperature in all subjects is what we would obviously induce, but the time of these temperatures occurred at a faster rate somewhere in the middle of these sessions compared to the very first session where people would have their shock response, which is what is posited to happen. But it was also interesting that heart rate during cooling would decrease significantly from the second cooling session, not the first. The first cooling session, the heart rate was pretty high. But between the second cooling session to about the 17th session, the heart rate actually decreased. And this might be an indicator of less of an epinephrine or norepinephrine surge. And throughout the protocol, the oxygen consumption, the metabolic heat production, and cold shock values decreased consistently during the first six cooling sessions. And then at about the sixth session, that's when all these values, that is the oxygen consumption, metabolic heat production, and cold shock values reached their lowest. Now, I'm not sure what the cold shock value was, if it was a cold shock protein, which I'm inferring that that is what they did measure, or it was a more subjective feeling of how cold they felt. And what was interesting is that 
the subjective sense of shivering sensation decreased consistently and it got to its lowest value at about the 14th cooling session. So what the investigators found is that this cold acclimation protocol yielded a significant reduction in thermal and comfort sensation. So people got more comfortable, I guess you could say, at about the 14th session. The first session being obviously the worst. Now, what was interesting is they didn't find any significant correlation between body mass index and changes in body temperature, subjective sensations, or stress markers. And the stress markers were cortisol concentrations, epinephrine, norepinephrine, that is, or immune variables. They measured leukocytes, neutrophils, lymphocytes, and monocytes. But they did find the higher your BMI was, the less of a change in metabolic heat production you had. And, of course, inversely, the lower your BMI, the higher your metabolic heat production was as the process continued on subsequent days. So it appears that, yes, there was some cold acclimation over this 20-day period of cold water immersion, which is very interesting and which is what we just talked about. Now, getting back to this idea with the negative correlation between body mass index and changes in metabolic heat production, which I just alluded to before and after acclimation, seems to be consistent with another inverse relationship between body fat content and brown adipose tissue. So the, I guess you could say the fatter you are, the less brown adipose tissue you have, and the thinner you are, maybe you have a larger amount of brown adipose tissue. But this may suggest that cold acclimation can infer that there is a presence of increased mitochondrial heat production in more activated brown adipose tissue. So brown adipose tissue, it's metabolically active. And induction of cold acclimation tends to activate activity of brown adipose tissue. You're now getting non-shivering thermogenesis, aka brown fat-derived thermogenesis. But thermogenesis is still going on, but that shift is now occurring in the brown fat as opposed to shiver, which is really a nice thing. And that's probably why the subjects probably felt a more subjective sense of comfort with time. If you're into it, it appears that there is some role for cold acclimation strategies now, whereas maybe about 10 or 20 years ago, we weren't really sure. So the next time you're on a rafting trip or something like that, you might want to consider some sort of a cold acclimation strategy. Hey, I'm no doctor. I'm just an average Joe like yourself, but I've got a theory about it. And shape up your mouth. Drones and search and rescue? Is this a pipe dream? Many of you may have heard about the case that happened last year in the Himalayas, but we're going to get into it with a little depth. And this is, by the way, a case report in the journal this month. So read it. We have with us Jake McRae. Jake, you're calling from Salt Lake City. It's great to have you on the program. Daryl, thanks. Um, so I'm a, I'm a third year medical student right now and a member of our county's search and rescue unit. Um, and we've been seeing the need for drones a lot lately. And with the new technology that's, that's come about, it's really given us new tools to utilize in search and rescue. And so we came upon this project kind of by chance. Um, me and my research team were, were very into drones, we're very into using them for medical purposes. And we, we saw this case 
over in uh, in Broad Peak where there was a a climber that got separated from his group and got lost, and his group presumed him dead. He he went on to summit Broad Peak. So it sounds like this was a case of a Scottish climber and somehow he got lost from his friends and from my understanding his friends came back to base camp and were you actually there as well were your uh, cohorts there no so we we weren't actually there Um, we heard about this case that happened and then immediately contacted uh, the climber that got lost we contacted the rescue group and his climbing partners and the pilot and just kind of got the whole story together and then thought, hey, you know, this sounds like a really cool thing that they did, new technology. And so we decided to go ahead and uh, and write a paper on it. And so, yeah, like you said, what happened is, is a group of four very experienced mountaineers went out and they started hiking a broad peak. And then they decided to turn around because the weather started to get inclement, started to get windy. But uh, one of them, the, the climber that got lost, decided he wanted to continue. So he did a solo bid. And then after summiting, he got kind of turned around and fell off an ice cliff and skid about 400 meters until coming to a stop. And it's kind of interesting because where he stopped was about a pretty steep 45 degree plus angle. And if he would have kept going a few more meters, he would have fallen off a couple thousand meter cliff. So he was alone on this mountain for... 36 hours without food, without water. He lost his rucksack. Uh, the, the group that he separated with completely presumed him as dead. They descended back down, like you said, to base camp um, where they met up with a couple Polish filmmakers and mountaineers who happened to have a drone and they just asked him, you know, could you go up and scan and, and see what happened? And so the drone goes up and he he spots something that they think could be. And once they confirm clothing and stuff, they confirmed that it was the climber and the climber was still alive because the climber started, you know, waving at the drone. And then that sparked an immediate search and rescue where there was already some climbers over at camp three that they dispatched over to his location and found him. And surprisingly, no broken bones, just uh, uh, severe dehydration, frost nip. And then they, uh, they brought him back to camp three. And then over the next few days, brought him back down to base camp and got him medically evaluated. You would think that, well, you know, our friend's lost somewhere, he's fallen, he's dead, that's it, let's pack up. But fortunately, these guys had a drone to be able to affect, I guess, finding his friend and doing some sort of a rescue. Yeah, absolutely. Without the drone, I mean, even the climber himself said in the interview, you know, this would have been a, a futile event. Um, the drone really showed him right where he was, led the rescuers to him. And at that point, you know, he's been 36 hours on the mountain, no food, no water. And it's kind of uh, very fortunate that, that the drone was able to spot him and, and lead him off the mountain. Do you know how high he was when he was found? Uh, he's about at 7,600 meters. Broad Peak itself is just over 8,000. And once he, he fell and slid, he kind of stopped at around 7,600. Broad Peak being one of the quote-unquote easier mountains uh, above 8,000 meters. But it's interesting that a drone will be able to work that high. Most of the time, even aircraft can't get up that high. Were you aware of any issues such as altitude that was able to be attained from these drone operators? Was there a lot of wind? Do you know much about the environmental conditions at that time? 
Yeah, there was a decent amount of wind, but the the cool thing about these new the drone that was used was a Mavic Pro is they can fly in 40, 50 mile per hour wind just fine. And so there was a decent amount of wind, but he was able to to go up and and an interesting point is he was at one point that day flying the drone at 8400 meters. So quite a bit over broad peak. Just kind of goes to the capabilities of these drones and what they can be used for. Now, it sounds like you've used some drones or your group has used some drones. Are you aware of drones needing some sort of an internet or something like that to be able to find their coordinates or to be able to transmit an image or a video to a user's, be it an iPhone or an Android platform or some sort of a receiving unit? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we use drones on our search and rescue unit right now, and there's there's absolutely no need for internet or any even kind of cell service. It has its own Bluetooth type connection that the, the, the controller connects directly to the drone, and they can fly up to two to three miles away, and you still have have good connection. So how we use them on our search and rescue unit, we actually have goggles that we put on, and it feels like you're sitting in an IMAX theater and you're seeing exactly what the camera sees. And you can fly, you know, thousands of feet up, a couple miles over, and you can scan an immense amount of terrain compared to boots on the ground, you know, looking for people, they're looking for, for search and rescue victims. It's amazing. And just for the listeners, there are several applications that you can download on iPhone. I personally know of one called Drone Deploy, and there's a few others that will actually give you a map of a given area before you fly the drone, and then you can actually put in a grid search pattern into the desired area that you would want to do a search. Do you folks do that, or do you just simply fly to a less known coordinate? How do you figure out where your drone should go, in other words? Yeah, we haven't used too much of the uh, coordinate systems yet. Right now, we have about three or four pilots on our search and rescue unit. Um, and we uh, we have the goggles that we just put on and it gives you like that IMAX fill. And then we just take it up and wherever the suspected location is or, or the areas that we don't wanna send our search and rescue personnel due to you know dangerous cliffs, whatever, we can use a drone, quickly go over, scan, see if there's any any sign of the, uh, the victims there and, and go that way. And do you have anything else to say with respect to the drones used on that search and rescue at Broad Peak or the condition of the climber or any other feedback that you've gotten since you got the drone video information from those climbing parties? Uh, the, the video, it's actually released online um, just on YouTube. It's, it's incredible. You can look it up and see exactly you know, where, where they found this climber. You can see the cliff that he was, you know, close to skidding off. And so, and so, yeah, that, that was incredible, that aspect. Um, and sorry, what was, what was the rest of that question? Oh, I have no idea. Anything else you want to add? I, and, and by the way, yeah, I, I've shown that video and I'm planning to show that video in the future for some presentations because I think that drones is really the wave of the future. I'm sure that you've 
probably done enough search and rescue, maybe without a drone, and you're just searching for somebody and there's no ping on a cell phone, they don't have a cell phone, they're out of batteries, whatever it might be. And it's real hassle. And I think that drones are really changing the game of search and rescue for the best. Yeah, absolutely. And we we have a few other projects that one we just completed, we're writing a, a paper right now, and then one we just finished the IRB approval and we're starting with. But we're actually using drones for other purposes instead of just looking for people. One of the projects is we're using drones to deliver water bottles, uh, medications, different type of supplies to hard to reach areas. So say a rescue team goes out and they're, you know, two hours, three hours up this cliff face, we can use a drone and we can fly a water bottle to a patient in less than five minutes. Another cool use right now we're using with the drones is in restoring radio communications. We have a radio, and this might be a little out of the uh, context of this interview, but we have a radio simplex repeater that's lightweight that we actually connect to the drone and then we just send it up to an elevation of 400 feet and it kind of serves as a a bigger blanket in case of our, our radio communications go out which actually happen all the time like some kind of a repeater i would imagine you'd need a monster drone for some of those operations we actually are using the mavic too the weight on it is about eight ounces for the radio repeater the whole combo so technology is really really allowing us to to use the drones to to do that yeah and that's amazing the drone use has been pretty prolific through some places like in africa where there are cases of delivering blood there is just that case out in uh, university of maryland delivering a kidney to a transplant patient via drone from one hospital to the next to get over the traffic. And there's also use of throwing down lifeguard buoys to people who are drowning. And I don't know if that's actually been done on humans, but at least they've worked with it using mannequins. So I think that drones are definitely the game changer. Now, how do you guys get a permit from the National Forest? Because I understand that they're pretty restrictive on drone use in wildlife areas. Yeah, and this is something that's probably been our biggest obstacle in using drones is working with the FFA, working with the federal laws, filing the right type of permits. Because right now, the way the law is written, they don't want you flying your drone without, I mean, out of your line of sight. And so, you know, if you're thinking of a drone, how small they are, they get two, 300 meters away and they're, you know, they're out of your line of sight and they're capable for going miles. So there are permits online that you have to file for and our sheriff's office has taken care of most of that, um, that you can, you know, fly at night, you can fly outside of line of sight. Um, and we, we've noticed the state parks and all, all, all the agencies that we've dealt with have been very receptive to letting us use the drones, practice with the drones, as long as it's for a life-saving purpose rather than just recreation. Well, that's been great. And so, folks, I just invite you to look at the new Wilderness Environmental Medicine Journal article that is entitled Using an Unmanned Aircraft System, a.k.a. a Drone to conduct a complex high altitude search and rescue operation. This is a case study and I've spoken with Jake McRae and there's a whole slew of folks that have been involved. And if you have any questions, feel free to contact me. I can contact Jake and good luck with your drone use, everybody.
And thanks, Jake, for coming on. Hey, Daryl, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Last month, I was invited to give a laboratory session as well as a speech on improvised medicine at the second Pan American Global Emergency Medicine Conference held in San Miguel de Allende, Mexico. This is an amazing place, San Miguel de Allende. Many of you have heard of it, but I recommend that you go if it's ever possible. Well, anyways, there appears to be a lot of interplay between global medicine and wilderness medicine in case you haven't noticed. And... As a disclaimer, I was actually the co-founder of The Host, which is PACE. The PACE program was started about 20 years ago, and I started it with Dr. Haywood Hall. And it stands for the Pan-American Collaboration in Emergency Medicine, or PACE-MD, as some of you may have heard of it. In Spanish, it's called the Programa de Actualización Continua en Emergencias. ¿Qué pedo? ¿Qué pedo literally means what a fart. But we use it to say, what's up? Que pedo? Over the past several years, my energy has actually gone back into developing wilderness medicine programs. So I haven't been as involved with international emergency medicine in Latin America as previously. However, the both are actually coming together quite nicely. And, you know, the wilderness aspect, the austere medicine aspect, and the international emergency medicine aspect meet at a very interesting junction. And I call this Wilder National Medicine. Now, I went down there just this past month with one of my residents, my senior resident in emergency medicine at UNM. And we held the workshop. We gave the plenary session. And, you know, why would we want to do it at a global health conference? Well, it could be because we are working in a hospital where there's limited resources after a disaster. It could be out there being in the middle of nowhere delivering patient care, wherever you might be. Just a regular tube made of anything, rubber. And then you have this safety pin on the end. Why do I have a safety pin on the end? It ends up. Para que no se pueda perder, no que podemos traccionar después. Exactly. So you don't aspirate. Now, I interview Dr. Haywood Hall, first of all, who helped carry the PACE program to an amazing level throughout Latin America. And then... You'll hear a lecture from Dr. Terry Mulligan, who talks briefly about megacities. Now, megacities, what does that have to do with wilderness medicine? Well, it has a lot to do with wilderness medicine. You'll hear the megacity speech by Dr. Terry Mulligan, who he also holds quite a lot of amazing responsibilities for the advancement of global EM. He's done it through ASEP, through AEM, and now through the International Federation of Emergency Medicine. So listen to these two guys as I interview them, and here we go. Yeah, so anyways, it's great to have you, Haywood, and San Miguel. Welcome here. Well, actually, I should be welcome here. <laughs> so so just to give you a little background, uh, when, when were we interested in starting uh, this PACE program? What year was it? 
Uh, you know, I mean, uh, I think there's always been some little seed in there since I, since you know we finished residency program practically together way back in the primordial ooze of emergency medicine uh, training there in New Mexico. Um, I would have to say that uh, you know by the mid '90s I was coming back and forth with with an idea of doing this, and then uh, we came down here in um, uh, I think it was '97 or '98 when uh, when the, you know when the first brick for Swag was was planted, right? Yeah, the Swag brick. <laughs> and uh, Swag is the Sistema de Urgencia del Estado de Guanajuato. That's the that is the um, it's the pre-hospital system. Actually, it was more of like an inter-hospital transfer system, but uh, it's grown and there's uh, over 250 ambulances and a helicopter and all that kind of stuff. And and uh, uh, we, uh, by, by 2002, we actually um, did the, um, uh, the, we formed the organization. It was a PACE MD Mexico, the nonprofit, 2002. Obviously, you were there from the beginning on that. Um, and then, as you remember, we started the, the you know, first advanced airway course, the ultrasound uh, course. You've always been involved with that very much. And, and then we brought the TNCC down basically from the University of New Mexico. Right. Uh, we, and that's gr all this stuff has grown in different ways. We, we uh, brought uh, the advanced life support for obstetrics with a strong group from uh, New Mexico as well. Right, and from all over now. Yeah, and now that, we have people from all yeah, over. Yeah. This is a uh, second congreso that we've yeah, You've really did a spectacular job organizing, bringing these people from, you know, all over the United States, Mexico, and other places like Argentina. Yeah, yeah. Last, you know, last year, we had even more uh, people. We brought people from uh, Chile came. A, a mm. group came and we trained them in, also, in the ALSO course, which is the Emergency Obstetrics course, which we've trained 18,000 people here in Mexico, which is phenomenal. We've also, last year, trained the Marina, the, the military, mm. uh, in the ALSO course and how to, how to give it. Yeah, and you've uh, actually a lot of the success you've had with also has been down in the state of Chiapas, which is a wonderful place even for improvising medicine. Yeah, well, we've taught in every single state. Um, the focus has been um, because been in the states that have the highest maternal mortality, and so the states further south, and also the state of Mexico and Veracruz. These are places where we've actually had federal contracts from the Mexican government to go and train. We trained 3,000 people in Chiapas, 3,000 doctors, uh, plus we trained uh, traditional midwives and community health workers, and it was a you know kind of an amazing experience for us. Three, 17 people, three days, and. Um, and, well, we didn't train 3,000 people in three days, but we, <laughs> that had been going on for a couple for a couple right. of years. Yeah, well, but, I think... Oh, we, I wanted to say that yeah. the maternal mortality rate in the two years that we were there dropped from 31% uh, to 20... to 31%. It dropped 31%. Wow. Yeah, that's pretty huge. Yeah. yeah, and I guess stateside, we don't realize the importance of also courses, but you go to, you know, some of these other places and where, you know things are not quite as well put together and man you, I think pace has really made a significant difference and you've really made a significant dif difference the world over so people are imitating your model <laughs> well you know I mean honestly in the states uh, I think emergency medicine is going to have to start uh, doing um, 
uh, also. Uh, one of our star instructors happens to be Judith Antonelli. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, and there's a reason, you know, I mean, because of the problems with the healthcare system, uh, I think we're going to be seeing more uh, more th- third uh, trimester problems in the emergency department. And um, so, I mean, that's just a, a reality. So we're the poorest rich country. Yeah, the poorest <laughs> rich country. Yeah, here we go. All right. Well, thanks a lot for your time. <laughs> That's great. That's excellent. Right now, there are about 35 megacities. It used to be that a megacity was 10 million, but now there are too many 10 million population cities, so they've changed the megacity up to 20 million. So there are about 30 cities now that was 20 million or over, and we're going to have another 30 megacities in the next 15 or 20 years. And those are all, like I mentioned, going to be in lower middle-income countries or in the southern hemisphere. And by 2025, which is right around the corner, half the world's population or more uh, will be living not just in cities, but in megacities. All right, Terry. Well, we're right here after the second PACE conference. Uh, It was a big success, I feel. But I wanted to just get your thoughts since you've actually made a career out of global health, do you feel that there's any integration between what we would call global emergency medicine or global health and what I've termed wilder national medicine? Um, yeah, uh, I think there's there's a huge um, crossover. There's a huge kind of shared Venn diagram. You know, one thing is that emergency medicine itself for medical students and I think international emergency medicine the way I was brought up with or global emergency medicine whatever you want to call it um, and wilderness medicine these things are all inherently interesting in and of themselves you don't really have to convince medical students to be interested in emergency medicine because a lot of them are and you don't have to convince emergency doctors to be interested in global emergency medicine or to be interested in wilderness medicine because I think these things are natural extensions of the way we, the way, you know, the stereotypical emergency medicine mind thinks. Uh, we do have a little bit of this innovative improvisation that happens to us every day during shifts and things. The, 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 the overlap, I think, is global emergency medicine is uh, kind of our passion uh, expanded and writ large. And in, in a lot of ways, I think wilderness medicine or austere medicine or wilderness national medicine, if, if you know, you're going to call it that, uh, it has this inherent, it's kind of an inherent expansion of, of what we are already doing. You know, we're, we're trying to make do with what we have. And what we have is never enough. Uh, even if you're practicing in, you know, the upper academic, super urban, well-equipped it's never enough. Uh, and uh, if you take that in half and go to a country that might be five or ten years behind, or you take it in half again and go to a country that might be 25 years behind, or maybe even take it in half again out in the places where you're more comfortable than I am, like uh, you know, in the wilderness or the top of the mountain or the middle of the uh, uh, countryside, um, you still have... Uh, and in, in a huge amount of, of know-how in order to help. I think half of what we do is um, the science and the technology and the CAT scans and the equipment, and uh, that, you know that changes uh, pretty quickly every five or ten years. But the other half is the approach, is the philosophy. Is you know, given what we have um, to use, and given what is happening with this person or with these people, what 
uh, do we do first? What do we do second? What do we do third? What are the life-saving things that are possible uh, that need to be done? What are the things that might be able to be put off? And it's really that's that that thing is that part of our training and our philosophy and our instinct that's translatable to any environment. Um, so you know, you can take half of what you know as a, an emergency physician. But, you know, I was trained in the U.S., but I had, had training outside in other places since then. But you can take half of my training, and it, I wouldn't be able to enact it or use it in you know half of my training in most of the world. But the other half of my training, which is, you know, who do we see first? Who do we treat first? What's the worst thing this could be? Uh, What's the next thing this could be? Uh, What's the um, diagnosis this person could die from if I miss it? These are approaches and philosophies uh, that we have that these can really be implemented anywhere and can be implemented with, you know, very little equipment, very little, uh, you know, high technology. So I think there's a lot of philosophical overlap between uh, these you know, seemingly disconnected fields. Yeah, and I think it probably speaks to some these disciplines actually being able to come together because we've briefly discussed even some of the global impacts that things such as climate is playing and migrant health and things like that. And I think it's really going to be necessary to join these two disciplines eventually in the future. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, I was asking myself the question, what is it you really need to, to be, to practice as an emergency doctor? It's not just what's in your brain. Some of it is the stuff, uh, the, the room, the building, the equipment. But what, the, the longer I've done this, the, the, the more I'm realizing that it's, it is really the mental preparation. It is really the change in, you know, philosophical approach that we have that other doctors don't the same way. It's like when I go into the room for five or ten minutes and when the cardiologist goes into the room for five or ten minutes and we both come out, it's the same five or ten minutes, but it's we, we're, we're both thinking different things, you know. And so when we are in these environments where there might not be an emergency department the way we're you know, trained to expect, there might not be equipment, there might not be things, we still have an enormous amount to offer, um, especially places like you know, the whole concept of treat first what kills first and what's the worst thing this could be and right. you know, kind of field triage uh, uh, in order to take care of you know, multiple different... That's something that we do really, really well and we do that instinctively. You know, our training is not just in you know, figuring out who's stable and who's unstable, but also providing the care for the you know, vast majority of the people who happen to be unstable. And, and like most things in life or most things in medicine, you get 80% of the bang for the buck out of doing the very basic stuff. Right, right. Uh, you know, so, so the same way you probably learn, and this is an exaggeration, but you'll learn how to take care of 80% of your patients in the first two years of residency. Learn how to take those other, how to, how to take care of those other 20%. That'll take you another 10 years. To learn. Um, same thing with, uh, you know, training folks for um, pre-hospital care or for uh, first responder care. You know, the 80% of the efficacy is, comes from very basic training. Basic right. Emergency care. And also, maybe, you know, you can correct me if you disagree with this, but, you know, I think in wilderness medicine, 80% of the efficacy is just doing the ABCs and, and then being creative with some of the other other things, which, uh, you know, we really have kind of a second nature in our thinking and our behavior. Right, yeah. And I think there's a great interplay. There's a great relationship between global health and wilderness medicine. So, well, good. Well, thanks for your time and your input, man. Right, yeah, well, thank, yeah. thanks. Can't wait to um, see what's going to go, and let's find a place to eat. All right.
And that concludes our Wilderness and Environmental Medicine live podcast from Wilderness and Environmental Medicine, the official journal of the Wilderness Medical Society. Copyright Wilderness Medical Society, published by L. Severe. Don't forget to complete the CME questions at www.wms.org under Members. And drop us a line at wemlive.wms.org. Be safe and talk to you next time.